Hello, Blue Moon Podcast listeners. Thank you very much for downloading this year's live show and getting ready to have a listen. Uh, just before we start, though, I have to make a little bit of an apology. As you might know, Neda Manua is our guest for this year's live show. We've done it virtually, so everybody had to be on Zoom. And unfortunately, we had a little bit of a technical issue with Nedham's audio at the start of the podcast. It is there. It sounds a bit tinny and a bit horrid. Do bear with it because it does get better later on in the show. That's down to my own incompetence because I didn't record the backup to begin with. So enjoy the show and apologies about Nedham's audio. This is a bit weird, isn't it? This is the Blue Moon Podcast live virtually. We'd normally do our final show of the season at a venue in Manchester, but because of the pandemic, we're all in our homes and we're all doing it over Zoom. It means we do have an audience, but you can't hear them because I'm in control. I've got them all muted and because they all look like troublemakers to me anyway. So it's uh, it's great. I can say anything that I like and they just can't stop me. Anyway, because we're doing this virtually, it means that our guests don't have to be local. I'm your host, David Mooney. And for this very special episode, I'm joined from Denton in Manchester by Richard Burns. Hello. Uh, from Charlton in Manchester, it's Sam Lee. Hello. From Berlin in Germany, we've got Dan Burke. Guten Abend. And last but most certainly not least, from Salt Lake City in Utah in the USA, and I'm not really sure where that is, but all I know is about seven hours behind us, it's former City defender Nedermanua. Oh, hey guys, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't, I've not got my camera on, that wasn't the voice I was expecting then. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't me. That was Excuse me. <laughs> uh, right, yes. So, uh, talking about City for uh, the, the, the next hour or so. Um, looking back on the... Uh, it's weird because it's not a full season that's been. Um, I mean, first things first, Richard and, and Dan, I want, to, I want to start with you as the fans. Um, it's been a weird season with the, the pandemic and the break, uh, but it, it felt like it was almost off the rails long before then, Richard. Yeah, I think... Um, to me, it sort of starts to go off the rails and... I don't think this is the most insightful point you'll hear all evening, but you know, build up slow. Start to go off the rails with the defeat at Norwich. The the nature of that defeat, which was, um, you know, City were pretty poor that day. We saw a lot of holes in the defence. The way that we conceded the goals was dreadful. The way that um, we didn't effectively hit back once things started to go against us was was really, really not like the City that we've seen the last two seasons. Um, or the previous two seasons, I should say now. Um, I think it was pretty clear that day that something wasn't wasn't quite right. Um, and then fast forward a little bit to the uh, the August win over Brighton. And again, I'm sure it's probably going to be referenced a few times, but <clears throat> Emirate Laporte's injury, um, it's not the sole reason that City didn't defend well all season. It's not the offer a lot of the season. It's not the sole reason that they, uh, they suffered quite a significant swinging points from previous two campaigns but you can't get away from the fact that if you lose your best defender having also lost Vincent company in the summer um you're not going to come out of that stronger team are you not many teams would so um there I think the, the first two points where it was clear that something wasn't right Dan it, it felt before the pandemic as well that uh, I mean obviously Liverpool were, were a few wins away from winning the league by that stage um but it just it, it snowballed 
Before the pandemic. Uh, before the pandemic, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you look back at the the game at Anfield, was that November time, December time, when that was like a real six-pointer of City had won that game, they would have been just, you know, hot on Liverpool's heels and, and the fact that it got away from them that day. I don't. I think that was where the, the day the title was won and lost for them, wasn't it? You know, when you're up against a team who were not dropping any points, you know, they didn't lose a game until February, March time. Um, they weren't even drawing too many games. So City had just, had just slipped up so many times by then that it was just, um, it was, they just lost control of the title challenge pretty early on and never, never got back into it. Unfortunately, you look at that game uh, when City got the late winner against Southampton and Kyle Walker scored. I remember watching that game and then watching the Liverpool game uh, away at Aston Villa sort of simultaneously and they nicked it in the last minute and I just thought this is it. It's going to be like this all season now and so it proved unfortunately. Nedham, how important is, is momentum for players? Because like we've said a couple of times here that, that City just couldn't, what, what, every time it felt like they were getting a bit of momentum, they were getting knocked back again. Um, as players, does it does it really affect you that badly? I think it can do, but I think this was a very, very special year in terms of trying to deal with a loss of momentum because you were playing against, they were playing against a side who didn't drop any points. You know, it wasn't like they'd draw every so often or lose every so often. They were literally winning games every single week. So when, as I say, you can look now and see the end of the season, see City have 81 points and they're disappointed with how they've been this season. Like the team that won the league has 99 points. Obviously, I'm very grateful that it's not 100, but those are like, those are, those are outrageous numbers and the loss of momentum would affect you more just because they just kept moving forward all the way through to, you know, the last couple of months or whatever, when they've kind of taken a foot off the ball or taken an eye off the ball and not really performing as well. But yeah, momentum is a, it's a huge thing. I, I, I agree it is a huge thing. But like I say, to come up against a team that wasn't dropping any points whatsoever, you know, this is maybe once in a generation. Sam, all that said, City have won a trophy this season. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Looking for the positives here, that's all. <laughs> well, no, the, yeah, the, to be fair, the positives are uh, in, in very much the same way as, you know, top four is a trophy. It's that kind of, like, the positives are they're still a really good team. There's a few things they need to sort out, evidently, but it's not like they've completely fallen away. It's not like Chelsea and Leicester when they ended up winning it and then they sacked their manager halfway through the season and they were halfway down. Yes, they were miles behind Liverpool, but that's partly, as you know, Nedham said, Liverpool were just a runaway, runaway train. So there's nothing really you can do about that. Yeah, like we like say, City have got a couple of issues, but they're still at a really high level. They're still, they still play fantastic football. The problem is they play in probably just over two-thirds of their games and the other third is quite big. And yeah. it's enough to derail, derail a title challenge. We'll have to see if it's enough to derail the Champions League. Um, yeah, the, Car- the Carabao Cup, it's great. It's a trophy. But, you know, going into the season, nobody would have said, if City only win the Carabao Cup this season, would you be happy? Like, nobody would have said that. It's good. It's better to win it than not to win it. If they'd have won that and the FA Cup, you'd be like, yeah, it's fine. But, but to lose against Arsenal in that manner as well, you know, it's a reminder of the issues going into the Champions League. I mean, there's plenty to be positive about. I just wouldn't have put like, the Carabao Cup forward as the best example <laughs> of that. But the fact that Foden got man of the match in the final and played on the right wing. You know that that is another positive in the way that he's. I'm I'm doing an article on him at the moment, and somebody told me today that even at like youth level, he he was always scoring in the big games. And there's a difference between. It sounds obvious, but I've never really heard it put like this before. But he was saying, like, if you look at one of the players who started for Man United in the '99 Champions League final, there was a player on the pitch there who never scored at Wembley, never scored in the cup final. But then you've got other players like Mark Hughes who didn't have like a massive record, 
he wasn't one of England's all-time top goal scorers, but he would always score in the finals. He said Foden's one of those players that will always score in the finals. So that is like a really positive thing this season. And I hope to see him in the Champions League as well. So yeah, there are positive. Um, but to try and dress up the Carabao Cup as, as the biggest one. <laughs> it's difficult. It's a tough sell. Nedum, um we could have done with you this season because obviously they lost company in the uh, in the summer and then Laporte out all season. Why why were you not around? <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to sit here and have smoke blown up my way. <laughs> <laughs> I left a long time ago. City have moved on. Everything's fine. Yes, I played with Vincent. Yes, I played with some great centre-backs, but I'm not there. It's done. I think it's, um, for me, I'm always about, I always like to look at things um, in the whole sort of manner. So we, you could say City have been poor defensively this year and they've done this and they've done that. They've looked weak and so on and so forth. But then they finished the year conceding two goals less than Liverpool. And Liverpool's defence isn't something which has been spoken about as being leaky or anything like that. So on one hand, we see the goals that City are giving away and how it costs them. But on the other hand, it doesn't cost Liverpool to the same extent. So you don't perceive them in the same way. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to be objective, as I say, City conceded, I don't know, 36 goals or something in the league. Liverpool conceded 34. Objectively, you say Liverpool had the better defence, but you'd say they had a better defence by two goals across 38 games. When you look at it like that, it's not that bad. But then we still feel that it's a, it's a big problem with City because they're conceding too many goals. And that's the second best defensive record in the Premier League. You know, so which we, how do we really want to see it? Like, you can obviously be better because the year before, conceded 24 goals or something. But then it was the same for Liverpool. They conceded 22, so they've fallen off. But the topic about, for them, isn't about how the defence is leaky now. An iconic defender and a great player like Vincent Company's left, you know. They're not a million miles away from, you know, managing a few more, con- concede a few fewer goals and going on winning more trophies, I guess. Yeah, Richard. Um, was it what was what was what was the bigger problem for City in the in the Premier League this season? Was it the fact that they didn't replace company, or was it the fact that they lost Laporte so early on? I, I think it's that it's not losing company as such; it's not replacing company that was the issue. I mean, obviously, he had to go at some point. I think for if, there's been points in the years before he left where we thought his race might be run anyway, and it wasn't sort of untypical for him to come in into the bigger games or to come in at the end of the season. It's not like we were a team that were unused to playing without company. We'd dealt with it, we'd done it, and we'd we'd been fine through it at times. But company was, you know, he always had the appearance of being more than just a great defender and more than just a great player. It was the personality and everything that he appeared to bring to the dressing room, the the vibe that he gave off, that pure winner's mentality. And that's not to say that others don't have it. But then when, you, when you're left with a man down so that you've got less cover for an injury, and then the two main options to then come in when Laporte's injured, you're either bringing Fernandinho in from midfield and losing what he offers in midfield. It's not that he's a bad centre-back, but you lose the protection in front of him. And the, the two replacements are John Stones and Nicholas Otamendi, who I think, to be diplomatic, have got mistakes in them. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I fully, um, I fully agree with what Nedham said about um, you know it's only two goals more conceded in, in, than Liverpool, and it's not that on paper the defensive record isn't awful, but I think when my feeling from watching City and the, the, little, the little bit less that I've watched of Liverpool, to be fair. Liverpool don't make as many mistakes in defence. So you look at um, 
the goal that Van Dijk was responsible for against Arsenal was like the first time in 80 games he'd made a, uh, a mistake that directly led to a goal. I've not got the stats, so I'm open to being corrected. But I bet you couldn't say the same of Otamendi or Stones. The... I think Liverpool actually have made more mistakes than I thought the other <laughs> week. I was trying to work out the differences statistically, like in terms of missing big chances and stuff. Liverpool miss about the same amount as City. So I was like, maybe it can't, it can't be that. Maybe they score more from set pieces. They don't. Um, they, they've got more shots leading to errors. Sorry, so errors leading to shots, but less errors leading to goals. So that might be the difference. Uh, it's so weird. It's so it's so difficult to. So what? So what's that, Sam? Lucky, lucky is is what describes <laughs> Liverpool. Oh yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that, the VAR element. But yeah, that I mean, with City, it's kind of like the dis- distribution, isn't it? Like they got the Golden Gloves, sixteen clean sheets, more than anyone else, um, and one hundred and two goals, which is loads more than anyone else. But it's almost like they scored a load of goals when they don't necessarily need them. And I looked at the stats, and in like. They scored 55 goals in 11 games. That was when they battered teams at like 4-0, 5-0, 6-0, 8-0. That's 1-8-0. and 11 times they did that, but they scored 55% of their goals in 30% of their games. And they didn't always have the goals when they needed them, for whatever reason, you know, bad finishing or bad luck or whatever. And then I think if you look at the games where they didn't keep clean sheets, it was like 1.6 goals per game, which doesn't sound like an awful lot. But I think if you're getting on, you know, if you had a couple of 1-0 defeats in there, or you conceded two goals in a game, it's not, Great for champions when you've got another 22 games and you're conceding. It's, it's so weird to work out, and we still don't really know why. We can probably tell you how. Like, they've not kept clean sheets when they've needed them. I asked Guardiola about this. He said, Look, it's better, obviously, if you distribute everything better. If you, if you win every game 1 0, you're going to be a champion. And that's basically it. But I don't, I don't know why in a third of their games they've not scored when they've, when they've needed it. And in two thirds of their games, they've gone on a blitz. And I don't know why. In 22 games, they've not been able to keep it together, more or less. And in in 16, they've kept clean sheets. It's, I don't know, I'm not sure what it is. I I don't know why that would be. And it's tempting to go down the route of like, you know, mentality. And you start thinking, do they react well? I've got something to add to that. Yeah, go for it. I've got something to add to that. So with what you're saying, this is me coming from a player's perspective. You haven't seen it across many years yet. So when, for example, United were dominant, people used to think that they'd go to Old Trafford and they'd hope to get a result or hope to not get beaten too badly because that was the aura and the feeling within that space. And I, I used to see it affect so many players going in there. Like I'd see, even if, when they go into Europe, there'd be some teams, some great European sides go there and they'll just get annihilated. And one thing which I've found with City over the past year, maybe the last two years, is through certain, if through people having this perception that the defence is not as good as it was in the past, they feel more encouraged the moment they step on the field. And with that, they play it in a different manner. And I saw the reverse of that when Van Dijk went to Liverpool and he was playing well. I used to see attackers not want to get anywhere near him. So they're immediately taking a step back. Whereas for City, because people believe they're vulnerable, they take a step forward as a consequence. They're going to put people under pressure in areas which they wouldn't do. Say if it wasn't Van Dijk because they're worried about Van Dijk playing a diagonal or worried about Van Dijk doing this and doing that. And it's a really, it's, for me, I think it's a big flaw in terms of mentality in certain sportsmen. But it's definitely something I can see because people go to City and two year, year ago, two years ago, people go in there almost expecting to be swept aside. But now the teams are saying, well, we can bet in and we've got someone fast up front and they'll make a mistake. So they're encouraged. You know, they believe in themselves a lot more going there than they do going to live, going to Anfield at the moment where they've not lost in three years. You know, and that's it's, it's crazy, but it's definitely something which I think plays into it. I actually think that might be a problem in the Champions League. Like, I just remember I was at Leon last season 
at the away game when it was two all, but City were quite lucky to get to get the draw. And I remember at some point with like twenty minutes to go, Leon had like five men in him City back on the halfway line. When I think Leon in fact City were attacking and Leon left five up. And I just think in Europe you're less likely to have teams that are scared of City even when City are good, because a lot of teams are like, well, you know, we're top of our league or we're second in our league, you know, they're they're big teams as well. And I I do actually think no, that that may be an issue in the Champions League as well. I was asked yesterday why City haven't done well in the Champions League, and there's so many different reasons. And I mentioned that Leon, and maybe that's part of it as well, because they're, they're such really good teams, and they're not afraid. They're not trying to make a point. They will try that. And like, there's no way anyone's put five men up front in City from the break. And you, you can Guardiola probably had an answer for it, but there's he must have been thinking, nobody's done this to me in years. Five <laughs> men on the break, what do we do? I'm interested, Nedham, as as a player as well. When like we've talked about so many times this season, where where, where City, you know, have, have either conceded a goal in the first half, or the you know the game's been going on and on and on, and they're missing chances. And the, as fans, will turn around and go, they're not scoring today. When you're on the pitch in that situation, is is that a feeling you get? Do you get, do you get sometimes it's just not our day? You know, it's, I'm glad that you've asked that because somebody reminded me of something about my time at City recently. So if I was playing for City now, I don't think based on the players who are on the field, I don't think I'd ever think that we couldn't score. But I did play in 2006 when we scored 10 goals at home all season. <laughs> and I'll be honest, for three months towards the end of that year, yes, I was pretty sure every time we conceded, it's probably not going to be our day. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't fully believe that. And, I, and to be honest, I think that overall, one thing about City, the way it's changed and the way they've recruited and so on, I don't think they ever have anybody on the field who doubts that they can get a result, whether they're 1-0 down, 2-0 down, 3-0 down with time left on the clock. These are all winners. These are all like really talented players and they really understand the game in a special way. And for those guys on the field now, they won't give up until the manager gives up and the manager's never going to give up because he always expects the high standard, expects the team to win. So, yeah, I don't think... For the for the being a City fan, having been a City fan from days like when um, Rich is wearing that shirt, when Dan's wearing his shirt, you know what I mean? Like we have this thing in our minds where oh, it's not going to be, it's not going to be, it's not going to be. But the players who are on that field, they've never felt that, they've never thought that, and they will always believe that they're going to be able to score. So yeah, I think there's there's a bit of a disconnect there between the players on the field and the and the people in the stands who maybe have seen City from, City from a less favourable uh, viewpoint in the past. Dan, um, I, I don't want to be that guy that looks at the numbers, but I mean, I, when you look at the expected goal stats for City and Liverpool this season, if their games had gone as they as they would have been expected to to score, uh, City would have had fifteen more points. Liverpool would have had nineteen fewer. That's a twenty four point swing. Yeah, I think you do want to be that guy who looks. Like I definitely do want to be that guy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I do like the XG stat. I think it is an interesting metric of of how you know you watch a game and you think we should have won that uh, or we should have lost that today. And you, you look at the XG afterwards. And you can usually, you know, it's a good guide as to as to whether your feelings on that are true. And yeah, I don't know what it is with City. I do think they have a tendency. You know, we have we have a few players. You know, Raheem Sterling is one of them who has. Uh, what you got? Twenty Premier League goals this season is his best return for the club so far, and yet the the amount of chances I could think of, like clear cut chances that he's missed this season. Uh, the funny thing them, is, though, he's he's actually one of the few players who has outperformed his XG this season. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he went he went 
yeah. he went on a, uh, a run of about 12 games without scoring, I seem to remember as well. Yeah. Um, Gabriel Jesus is another one who who often misses chances. Um, he hasn't outperformed his XG, let me, let me tell you. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me, actually, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite easy to sort of analyse a game in hindsight, I think, and think, you know, this is where it went wrong today, this is where it went wrong. The Arsenal game in the FA Cup a few weeks ago was a prime example of this. You know, you looked at that game, City had a chance pretty early on when um, Sterling took the ball off Mustafi inside the penalty area and didn't pass to Silver, I think it was, and it came to nothing. And that was at nil-nil. You think if we'd scored that goal, we'd probably go in and win that game. And then even at 1-0 down, I think we all had that feeling when that goal went in that it wasn't going to be City's day. But then even at 1-0 down, they had chances. Sterling had that one where it just hit his face in the six-yard box and, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what the problem is sometimes. It is, I don't think it's a tactical thing. You know, I think Guardiola is very good at getting his team uh, into the right positions. And sometimes they're just not taking the chances and maybe... Maybe they need a, a more clinical finisher sometimes when Aguero's not there to, to put the chances away. I don't know. Richard, I want to ask from a fan's point of view, uh, how do you feel about outside factors this season? Because City have felt aggrieved over a number of things like VAR decisions. And, you know, the, there was the incident with Bernardo's tweet to Mendy. And, you know, just even little things like bad luck in front of goal. Dan mentioned the ball hitting Sterling's face. If it hits him in a slightly different part of his face, it probably goes in. As fans, do you do you look at those sorts of things and just feel like they're mounting up sometimes? Um, see, I think that you've got to separate those things. And I think that um, City are a club that for a while have had the, a lot going on off the pitch. Um, Nothing necessarily quite as big as the, the cast stuff has been this season, knowing that we had a Champions League ban hanging over us that we, that had been delivered. And obviously we had to appeal it to overturn that. But it's not a new thing that we've been investigated or had financial fair play punishments hanging over us or the idea that um, outside of the club, some of our achievements might be <clears throat> looked down upon or tarnished because of these accusations. So I don't think that's new. Um, I think the Bernardo stuff, just on a on a personal level for him, I think his form was off before the um, the tweet that he sent with Mendy. I don't think City, oh, sorry, that he sent to Mendy. I don't think City handled or addressed that situation very well at all. Um, I'm not sure how much effect that would have had on the team as a whole or the club. I mean, it's, that's a really hard one to say. Um, yeah, I think he wasn't. Well, he was fair, he was sort of fairly punished for for what he did, and it didn't. I think everybody could sort of see where where that one was going for quite a while. Um, but City didn't deal with it. But I'm not sure it affected how they played on the pitch, and I don't think that was responsible for a big. I mean, Bernardo's not had a great season as compared to last season when you could argue he was one of the top sort of two three players in the league. Um, he's just he's just had a bit of a a disappointing year. Um, and then, I mean, you mentioned sort of bad luck in front of goal or the ball hitting Sterling in the face. So that's, it's not, an, is that an external factor? That's not. <laughs> it's not taking your chances, yeah. I think it builds into like low confidence. Because I think yeah. like, could probably say more, but the more, especially earlier in the season, you know, the Norwich game. Do you remember the Burnley game when they won at Turf Moor in like early December and they battered them and it was, like they had like four games in a row and they hadn't won. Um, the Newcastle draw was just before that, and I think they were kind of looking around, going, "What is going on with us? Like we can still play really good football." 
we're still creating the chances, but nothing's going our way. And I think they beat Burnley then, and they were so happy afterwards. All their celebrations, all the fans are like, right, we're what's all that about? But I think they were just so happy to be like, you know, we're still us, we can still do it. But I think we did like four days later, we went and lost to United. And I just think those little things, I hit the ball hitting Sterling in the face, that was at Wembley way at the end of the season. But I think much earlier on in the season, that kind of, that thing had maybe set in. And I think that that affects the confidence, I think, of the group, maybe. And I think that's just one of the little things that's tied into it, maybe. What's what's your take, Nedham, on, on the VAR stuff for, for this season and, and how it's been applied, certainly in the Premier League and and, uh, and with regards to some of the decisions that City have had? Because you look at uh, uh, like the second game of the season, they had the goal, uh, the, the late winner disallowed against uh, against Spurs for the, the ball flicking off Laporte's hand. It, it It's felt, I mean, it's been the same for all clubs, but it's certainly felt for, for, for City that every time something, a key moment's been there, it's been, oh, VAR's come, in, come into play again. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And I think one thing I'd start with is that, so for my two and a half years in America, they've been using VAR, but they use it differently. So one of the big grumbles, is, like I see in the Premier League, is about the lines being drawn on the ground and all that stuff, which bring in, you could argue, more error. But then someone's saying that it's so someone's like knuckles offside or something like that, you know, that level of detail to call an offside doesn't feel right. Whereas in the MLS, you'll have the same pictures, but they won't put the lines down. So it's going to be about how you see it visually, which is essentially how somewhat like a lines or whatever would see it as well. Because let's be honest, a linesman playing in a, in a game or taking part in a game wouldn't be able to see that someone's right kneecap is slightly ahead of a player's like left shin, you know. And that's the game which we know and the game which we love. And there have been so many decisions where they've given offside and you look at it and you're like, I'm not sure. To the point where if they gave the goal, you wouldn't have complaints on either side. Like not the team that conceded or the team that scored, they'd be like, well, you know, I couldn't see it with my naked eye. It's not a dead cert. And so as a consequence, like given the fact that those calls have been made for key decisions like goals, like handballs, like penalties and so on and so forth, you know, you're going to have more talking points. And the way that City play, for the way they score so many goals, they have, they're probably having more stuff reviewed or more chances reviewed than, say, the average team. So as a consequence, you almost feel like it's more of a thing against you. So whereas a team that might have three chances against City, City might have 10 and two or three of them might be up for a review. So it feels like there's more weight on that. But yeah, I think overall the, the VAR system, I think they've got the right intentions. I think they've implemented it, implemented it terribly because fans don't really know what's going on. But then again, I don't think... Um, I think further down the line, if they just like relax on certain things, I don't think many teams will halt, will say that it's kind of against them because City, as I say, they've had some big calls go against them. But it's just unfortunately, it's just one of those things, and it's part and parcel of just being a side which creates lots of chances, and it's just a really dynamic football team. Yeah, the irony, Dan, is that we said at the, at the start of the season, oh, it's good VAR's coming in because all those lucky Liverpool goals where they've been slightly offside are not going to count this year. Well, yeah, I mean, the Liverpool game at Anfield was like, you know, the, probably the, the Madeira VAR for me this season. Like, uh, you know, we had that um, handball incident very early in the game uh, where it looked for all the world like they were going to get a penalty. It was waved away. Liverpool go straight down the other end and put one in, 1-0. One and then later in the game, there was a very sort of, dodgy looking offside let's say when, when Salah scored and I remember watching that game on TV they didn't show the lines or anything and there was a bit of a conspiracy theory going around afterwards which I actually believe 
that the uh, the VAR wasn't working and they didn't tell anyone about it. I'm open um, to conspiracy theories, mate. Don't worry yeah, about it. So, so, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've changed my mind on it so many times um, this season, and I'm at the point now where I don't really think it's adding much to the game. I still think we can, uh, you know, make it a little bit better by. Um, Having a bit more margin for error with the offsides, uh, the handball thing, the you know the fact that if it brushes against the player's hand, who's an attacking player, it's a handball, and a, a defender's hand, it doesn't uh, have the same effect. I think is is a nonsense. And I saw Nadam actually a clip from um, MLS today where don't they have like the referees mic'd up for the TV viewers, like explaining their decision? That seemed like a good way to do it. Whether they would be able to do that in the uh, I don't know. Well, let me let me tell you some more about that. So um, I'll, be, I'll call it exactly what it is. Yeah. So if you think the referees are bad in the Premier League, mate, way too <laughs> soon. It's disgusting. So, but with them, like a lot of the decisions they make on VR, like they they're more manageable, and they'll be telling you on the field what's going on. We're checking this. We're checking that, and you'll see it more on TV. Whereas over in the UK, it doesn't really feel like that. So there's there's a bit you can hear them talking about things more. You can get a grasp of what's going on. But I think my biggest issue with VAR, to be honest, is the fact that it's the system itself could work, but sometimes the standard of refereeing and people's understanding of what is required from the laws of the game is just like, it's in a different world. So as a consequence, it's just perpetuating the problem. Like if you have a bad official, then you've got four officials that are now on the field and one that's in a booth somewhere, it's still going to be crap. And unfortunately, that's the thing which is the hardest thing to, to understand because they make so many decisions where... People, you know, as a fan, you have a different opinion of what's just happened on the field. And as a player, you know, you're closer to being a fan than you are to being a referee. So when you see the decisions that they're given and there's stuff like that and they're saying, wow, this is what it is, just like, please just go away. Just go away. It just makes it worse. <laughs> Sam, um, it's it's been a just talking about uh, off the field distractions. Uh, it's been a busy week. Um the, oh, yeah. the the verdict from Cass came back uh, this week uh, in in full. Uh, you tweeted actually yesterday uh, or this morning that it's uh, it's, a, it's quite a big document, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. Have you made it's, it through it all now? Yeah, uh, I think I've made head head and tail of it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to take in there, but I think as everybody's gathered by now, I think your viewpoint after you've read it is going to be the same as your viewpoint going in. I don't think anybody. They're going to have gone in and changed their mind. It, that goes for City fans, particularly, obviously, because City were um, cleared anyway. The, the appeal was upheld. But um, particularly fans of other clubs, I don't think they're going to have gone in there and thought, oh, yeah, maybe maybe there was no evidence. They're just going to go, oh, well, what about this and what about that? And just the amount of stuff being like taken out of context and posted on Twitter, and even in some articles as well, uh, I thought that coverage was disappointing, really, even in like the media like, and the, kind of the, the people in the media um, that I would trust. I know there'll be a lot of people listening to this thinking, well, don't trust them and like, we haven't trusted them for years or whatever. But I, I did think I did think some of the, the coverage of it was very strange. Um, and like you, would, you wouldn't know from some of it that City you know, had, had, had the whole thing upheld. And obviously now there's a new wave today with the Desh Regal stories again with more emails. And I've just seen something in the Manchester Evening News which is kind of, I guess effectively, City's counterclaim to that unofficially. Um, it's gonna, it's just gonna rumble on forever. But like I've seen loads of tweets today with obviously City signing a couple of players or deals in place for a couple of players. Other like rival fans are moaning about City spending money, but it's like they're money yesterday about Ferran Torres. It's like twenty million quid. Like, that's the cheapest signing City have made in like forever. <laughs> like, people are just gonna keep on moaning anyway. People are just gonna keep on thinking what they thought anyway. And City fans are gonna feel like, oh, certain City fans are gonna feel like the club did nothing wrong. Some are gonna feel like well they did do something wrong, but maybe it wasn't so this or that. 
and fans of rival clubs are going to use any stick possible to beat the club, which is, you could say the same of fans of rival clubs saying like asterisks like Liverpool or, or you know, whatever you want to say about United. I'm sure you could probably fill a podcast with that. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I did kind of hope a long time ago that the written reasons would be like a follow on. Okay, here's everything out in the open, but I don't think anybody's too much better off. I don't think anybody's any more enlightened to it. Certainly, I think a lot of people's reading of the situation has actually got a bit worse because just how easy it is to take the fire context and see stuff on Twitter and just believe what you want to read. And I think that works for both sides, to be fair. Richard, are you are you done with it now? Is that it? Done and dusted? It's over? Yeah, I've been reading Twitter and taking from it exactly what I want to read. And let me tell you, <laughs> it works out pretty well that way. You've been having a great time. To be fair, I have enjoyed your tweets about it. I've enjoyed a lot of tweets about it, to be fair. <laughs> it's, um, no, it's... Good content. <laughs> It's um, all we can say is we got what we wanted. We got the result that we wanted. Our um, the hope, I suppose, was that City's reputation would be um, would not be tarnished at the end of it, or I suppose would be untarnished, and, and some of that that's gone against us would would be reversed to a point. And for the reasons that Sam's just said, I guess um, to the wider footballing public who want to believe that City have done wrong um, and want to believe somehow that the ultimate arbitrary panel for sport have somehow been fooled or have been open to, um, have been lied to, as is the latest Der Spiegel Spiegel accusations. People are going to believe that, they're going to read headlines because unfortunately it's the nature of um, how news circulates on social media these days is that people can just believe headlines or read the one paragraph subheading that just about forms a tweet and you don't have to read the article. Um, and yeah, I guess our name's never going to be in the, in the minds of a lot of fans, but we know that City have been, if not fully exonerated, they've won their appeal. And crucially, City started this by saying that they would prove their innocence in a court and that they believed that they would get the ban overturned. And they did. And they, they can't. They, they literally can't do more than that at this point. So City win and other people can be unhappy about that. But City have won and, and I'm happy that that's happened. Nedum, do players get, um, when when, they, when this sort of thing is going on, I mean, the, the, the ban was announced in February. Can that have any effect on the pitch? Does it, does it affect your mentality while you're playing? Um. I think it depends what type of player you are. But again, like I said, the players at City, their mentalities are just so focused on just winning games and winning titles and stuff like that. I don't think it would have been a big, that big a problem for them. And I think as well, from having spoken to people at City from when the appeals were going in, they were almost 100% sure, like not 100, but almost 100% sure that it would be overturned. So if that's what they're saying to people like me, you can imagine what they'd be saying to their players, reassuring them of like what is to actually come. So when... You know, even if you have the slightest concern, if someone that's in power who you trust says, no, it's fine, don't worry about it, then you, you, you take the word for it because that's their specialist field and they know what's going on. So yeah, for City, I, you know, I, it's crazy to think how much the club's changed over the years, though, because, you know, that's their biggest concern, will we be kicked out of the Champions League? I remember 10 years ago, I, sorry, even longer ago, it's like, oh, we've, I've heard we've got no money. Oh, we're going we're gonna to go into administration. We're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to do that. Not going to be able to play. Shinawatra is going to prison. You know what I mean? Like, what a what a different different world, a different position to be in now, where you can almost say, like, well, you know, I'm glad we're still in the Champions League for another two years. 
Because to be honest, I didn't see it 15 years ago, but yeah, still <laughs> here we are. Dan, is it drawn a line under it now, has it, I, I guess? Uh, not really, no. I don't think, I mean, I've not read the report or anything like that, so I'm not, uh, I'll, I'll wait for the film to come out instead, I think, but I'm not, I'm not <laughs> up on the, the ins and outs of everything. But, you know, like, like Sam said, people will, will cherry pick bits on both sides. And I heard this, uh, Der Spiegel thing earlier and I was sort of thinking, is this going to be round two? Are we going to have to go back to court and argue again? Is there going to be some sort of perjury allegations coming on now? And I just, I wish we didn't have to think about this because we're getting so far away from why we got into supporting this football team in the first place. All these extra things that you have to think about now. Everyone's a legal expert on Twitter. Everyone's, you know, got their own opinions about things. And you're not going to change those opinions, really. You know, if a court judgment isn't going to change those opinions, then nothing will, really. So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, it is going to go. And this, the mud will kind of stick on City for a, for a while, perhaps forever. Um, but, you know, we've always got the court judgment to fall back on. Aren't we? we could always refer people to that. And, um the biggest frustration for me throughout it all was that the word cheating was being bandied around as if we'd, you know, fielded ineligible players or, you know, handballed uh, a title winning goal into the net or something like that. And that was always so unfair, I thought. So at least that has been kind of uh, dealt with now. Well, we're going to look ahead to uh, next season shortly. But before we do, I just want to check in with uh, the charity bet because uh, although we've still got some games to come uh, this season, um, uh, the, the Premier League season's finished. We had a total of 168 bets over the course of the season with uh, the Champions League games that have been played, the Premier League games and uh, the, the, the two cup competitions. Uh, we won 11 bets, which uh, doesn't sound that great in, in, in total, but we have raised a total of £960 for the Christie for this season. Uh, I'm not saying anything, and this is mainly aimed at Richard and Dan because you've been on more shows than, than anybody else here, uh, but I've won five times and you two have, uh, well, between you, you've won once. And Richard won that one, I think. Richard won that so, one, yeah, he did. I've won none, yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't bet much these days, but from my previous betting history, let me tell you that one is more than you have any right to expect from me. <laughs> uh, well, uh, over the course of the season, I've got a few, I've got a few stats about it because uh, I do like a good stat. Uh, just a 5% of the money was won by guests supporting the opposition when we've given the, the bets over to somebody else. Um I, I, nearly nearly 20% of the money for this season was won on defeats. So predicting that City were going to lose. Uh, the biggest one being at Anfield by uh, Simon Bakowski. Um, uh, you know, 15% of the money was won against Aston Villa, 15% against uh, lower league teams, and absolutely nothing came from the Champions League. So we've got a chance to change that in the next few weeks. Uh, the total for the season, as I said, is £960. It brings the total for the four seasons that we've done it now uh, to £4,248 for the Christie. So uh, well done, everybody. Thank oh, you. Uh, thank you for, for, for doing that. Harry's is sponsoring Blue Moon Podcast. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. To ensure the best quality blades, Harry's bought a factory in Germany that's been making them for over 100 years. The factory team has more than 600 engineers, designers and craftsmen, and chemists to make Harry's products from the finest materials and ingredients. All of this ensures a quality shave at a fair price. As a Blue Moon podcast listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash moon right now. That's harrys.com forward slash moon. (laughs) 
going to look ahead to next season now. Um, because normally the second half of the live show, we'd, uh, we'd preview the coming season. And since it's not quite over yet, we're going to talk about everything that is to come in the next few weeks. So the Champions League and then the 2021 uh, campaign. Um, first up, like Richard, a lot can change between now and next Friday, um, especially given that Madrid have had a, a positive COVID test. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the biggest thing that could change, I suppose, is the game not taking place. Um I think at the moment, sort of everything seems to suggest that the game is going to go ahead. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I don't know. You, you don't know what could change then if, if it turns out somebody else has been infected or um, somebody who hadn't isolated or been in contact with the players, then there's going to be a hell of a decision for UEFA to make there because obviously in any, in any decisions that they make, primary concern has got to be the safety of everybody involved. So something could change. And obviously the only fair result would be to put City through on a bye because they've already <laughs> won the game. So, I mean, it wouldn't even be a bye if they've already won the game. So, I'll keep my fingers crossed for that. But on the basis that we could probably actually do with keeping up the match fitness and um, match practice ahead of a, hopefully, a quarter-final, I actually do hope that the game goes ahead. Um, although it would be funny to completely burn our way to the final by not playing after just winning a quarter. A, a quarter <laughs> um, yeah, a lot can change. Um, Real Madrid obviously appear to be in better form than they were when City beat them. Um, City were very, very good that night. They had some standout performances from De Bruyne and Jesus. You'd hope to sort of see similar again because we're not going to have Aguero, so we need to see similar again. Um, but I suspect Real Madrid will will make a bit of a, a bit of a fight of it because they're a pretty good team, the Spanish champions after all. Nedum, this is something that I, I probably should have checked, but were you were you in City's first ever Champions League squad? <laughs> um, kind of <laughs> so my story um, so that year was the year when I left so that was 2011-2012 and at the start of that pre-season I was training with the under-16s basically it was me Adebayor uh, Bellamy Bridge I think maybe Tevez came over for a little bit as well you know it's like the under-16 dream team um, <laughs> so I didn't so I didn't I didn't train I didn't train with the team didn't play with the team when they were on tour in America, all that stuff. And then the day after the window closed was the start of the week for the Champions League game against Napoli. And like I said, not even trained with the team. And then all of a sudden, I was in the squad for that game. <laughs> because I was thinking, what's going on here? But I ended up being the left out, so I was 19th man. And I think the reason they did it was because they needed to be a homegrown quota for the game because it was Champions League. So, yeah, I was kind of part of the first ever Champions League game. But honestly, what a weird time that was for me. I'm like, I look back now and I'm still absolutely baffled as to what was happening. So, yeah, I was, I was there. I witnessed it. But, yeah, it was a very, very strange, strange time. Why, is, uh, why do you think City have, have never kind of really cut it in the Champions League? Do you know, like, I, so some of my views on stuff, they're, they're a bit different to the norm just because I think, even though I am a City fan, I think I'm good at stepping away from just being a City fan and just watching things for what they are. So I don't get some of the same emotional attachment to disappointments and stuff because I just see it for what it is. Like if City deserve to win a game, I think they deserve to win a game. If they don't, it's like they don't. Like I'll just, I'll move on from it. But when it comes down to the Champions League, like bearing in mind they've made it, they've made it to a semi before and I think they let themselves down in that semi. I think the Champions League is literally a space where there were probably three or four teams every year where you could almost book in to get to at least the quarterfinal stage, maybe the semis. And those are the teams who just have, as sad as this may be, 
firstly, they have a history of doing well in the competition. They understand how it works. But then they've also got whole marinas, which terrify opposition. And unfortunately, I don't think the Etihad is that just yet. So say, for example, if City were losing 1-0, like, let me, sorry, let me spin that. Everyone's heard of these magical nights at Anfield. Everyone's heard about Real Madrid doing whatever whatever they need to do. Everyone's heard of Bayern Munich doing whatever they need to do. Back in the day, United at Old Trafford finding a result and all this. And we don't have enough of those iconic moments to the point where there's almost an expectation from everybody in the stands that the result is coming. Because maybe it's the downside of, say, us having been City fans for so long. You have the hope, but you don't have the expectation. When some of those arenas, they have the expectation because they've seen it so many times before. And, you know, for as good as City are and they can win, I think, in the, the, without doubt, when they're at their best, they're as good as any team on the whole planet. But when there's like that moment where there needs to be a bit of hostility or something like that, doesn't feel the same. Like, it's good, but it doesn't feel the same at the Etihad as it does at an Anfield or something like that. And when you get to those later stages, those are the those feel like the bigger European nights because even though City are there and, you know, they can very easily go on and win it, it just doesn't, obviously it's going to be harder now since no fans are there. But it just doesn't feel like that, in my opinion. And that is a shame. And I think it's probably something which is maybe the final hurdle in terms of just having success because people need to know that when they arrive in Manchester and they get walk through those doors onto that field, like they're going to be in for a terrible, terrible time from all people involved in Man City on that day. Yeah, uh, Dan, so effectively, next time you're in the stadium, book your ideas up. Yeah, well... <laughs> Stop booing the Champions League. I'm thinking about what we need to do then and start. Uh, I, yeah, I, mean, I think Nedham's spot on about that. Um, you know, City fans have never really sort of warmed to the Champions League, have they? I think the beef with UEFA is totally fair and understandable. Um, I am someone who really wants to win the Champions League, partly to shut a few people up and partly because it is the pinnacle of of the game. You know, it's, it's not really fair to judge a team solely on winning the Champions League. You know, there was a lot of talk last season about whether Liverpool had had a better season than City because they won the Champions League and we only won the Premier League and the FA Cup and the Carabao Cup. You know, I think the bread and butter is the league season, isn't it? And that is a true test of a team over the course of 38 games. But it's a test of a team's kind of stones and a team's bottle when you go in the Champions League. And that's what City have, have fallen down on a little bit in recent years. Here we are, Sam. Uh, it's that test of bottle and that, that test of stones. And we've said at the start of the show, City's problem this season is conceding too many goals from from easy chances and not scoring when uh, when they've got the guilt-edged chances, which for knockout football, it's not a great mix, is it? No, but like the, th- the thing about City's season is we've been saying this a while before the lockdown as well. We were saying this going into the Real Madrid game at the Bernabeu, which is the stadium that will make you think, shit, we need to pull something out of the bag here. And they did. And also, we've talked about their record from uh, coming from behind, not being great, but they they went down there and they and they won. And people talk, I don't necessarily agree, but people talk about Rodri and Gundogan not being great together, but they played there and they won. So all of these things, you know, they, they can confound you and they can confound expectations. Um, and in that game, I know Sergio Ramos got sent off, which isn't, and he gets sent off like a ridiculous amount. But if you talk about that belief that all the top teams have got, uh, like Nedham was saying, like Sergio Ramos is that poured into one person. It's like he's personally won Real Madrid's 13 European Cups. And obviously he's got the World Cup. He's got the two Euros. He's just got all of that. And the fact that he's not playing is big. Um, I, it's difficult as well because I think City, these games they've played recently, I've been lucky enough to be at the Etihad. And obviously the Bournemouth game was much more competitive. But it was almost like just going through the motions. And there was just a feeling that... City are playing themselves in for the Champions League, but ultimately the games weren't big. There was nothing riding on them. Whereas Real Madrid, 
they've overtaken Barter. They had to go about doing their business. They've had big games in there. Um, in fact, you know, they've had they've played games that really matter. There's been stuff riding on it, and I, that that might be a bit of a factor. I'm not saying it's going to put Real Madrid through into the next round, but it, it might be something that you just can't replicate. Like City players will have to go from as much as they've been trying to work hard and they beat a lot of teams five 0 and they've been on it in certain games. You just know that it doesn't matter, and maybe that helps in some cases. And then, but now they need to, they really need to up their levels and it's do or die. And then that, I suppose that goes down to the individual reactions of each player. You know, do they do better under pressure or worse? You know, it might, it, there might be a bit of a split between the squad because they're all individuals. Um, but yeah, we just don't know. Like, you don't know if they're going to win 5 0 or lose 2 0. But we didn't know that either before the first leg and they did it. Yeah. I, I do think City will go yeah. through. Um, it, and yeah, just go back to Nedda's point as well. It's, it is really important that Sergio Ramos isn't playing because. It just he's just so he's just so big. Sam, sorry, you made you made a good point there, and you were talking about pressure. One thing which I've felt about City from when football's restarted is the fact that there are no fans in the stadium. For as much as it can give you a big boost, I think in my career, some of the best football I've ever seen has been in training. And for a team like City, who feel who now feel no negativity at all based on any decision that they could make on the field whatsoever, in some ways, it's made the game easier for some of those guys to play in the side. Yeah. Like it's crazy to think of it that way because you just think people just love performing at the highest highest level, but within some people's minds, there's always going to be a doubt, especially when people are like making noise to let you know that maybe this is the wrong thing to do. You get a tone in the stadium, but when it's literally just two teams on a field with the coaches on the sideline, it's different, and that's probably why you could argue some of the football they've played when they've demolished teams in this period now was probably better than maybe they were experiencing before in stadiums because it's just like the overall the pressure is different like the top players will always be at the top but some of the other ones now they'll make a different type of decision because they know they're not going to be judged based on people who are around them and so as, as i say it's easier for them to say well i'm going to try this now or i'm going to do that now and feel no stress in doing so and it ends up being more progressive yeah richard it's uh if city do win the champions league this season and i appreciate that is a big if at the moment um they're they're good they the worry that they won't get the credit they deserve for it is surely out the window. When you look at the list of teams they have to play, if they get if they, if they get past Real Madrid, uh, you know it's Leon or Juventus. If they get through that, it's Napoli, Barcelona, Chelsea, or Bayern Munich. It's the hard route. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's the if you can do it. I know you'd, you'd probably never um, you'd never necessarily choose the harder games, would you? Um, if you could lay them out in front of you and have your pick, but. If you can sort of see forward and see that you're going to win the Champions League and then choose which teams you sort of skittle out on the way to doing it, then you choose you choose to win it or to have won it through the hard route, wouldn't you? Because it, it, it looks better and you can't discredit it. Um, there's no easy way to do it. I, I suspect that, I mean, this, <laughs> this falls apart if we do go out to Madrid, but I, I suspect that it being over one leg per game will suit City. Um, it removes, there's already been a comment um, about Pep possibly overthinking the Real Madrid game. It's a regular accusation of him in the Champions League that he overthinks games, he overthinks the first leg um, and he, he doesn't have a great record away from home in the Champions League across his, his whole career. Um, playing games over one leg will remove the risk of that to a large extent because Pep knows how to go out and win a football game, stating the obvious. Um, <laughs> You know, there's not really many better managers in history who've been able to put a team together better than him. Over one game, 
will suit us because we don't have to think about the knock-on impact. And this weird little mini tournament where we've not got a factor in, well, we've got a Premier League game midweek and we're in a title race. Everything is geared towards winning this competition now. And I think um, I, I think that probably suits City. Um, there may be other teams in the competition who say it'll suit them as well. But I do think, despite the harder draw, this gives us our, our best crack at it that we've ever had. Um, and I would be extremely, well, I'm optimistic. I can't say I'd be devastated if we don't or that we should win it because it's, it's too hard a competition to do that. And at the end of the day, it is a cup competition and things can go wrong in one-off games. Things can turn in a, in a split second that you can't pull back. Um, but yeah, bring on bring on the big teams because this is, this is what we wanted for so long, isn't it? So we can't, we can't complain too much now we've got it. It is. Well, we're going to talk transfers for a couple of minutes. Uh, we are going to come to uh, some audience questions for the end, though. So uh, if, you, if you've got a question for the guys on the panel, uh, you can, through Zoom, raise your hand uh, and we should be able to see it. So, uh, so get thinking of your questions and then we'll come to the audience a bit later on. Uh, but first, uh, Dan, you posed a good question on, uh, on Twitter before. Uh, if City's centre-backs for next season are Laporte, Ake, Stones, Garcia, is that strong enough? Um, I've... I'm not sure about this one, really. I mean, Stones is is a big question mark over him, isn't there? I'm not quite ready to give up on Stones yet. You know, I think he's had um, some troubles in his personal life, which have affected his game. Um, And, you know, he's lacking in a bit of confidence. I hope that there is still, because there's definitely still a player in there, isn't there? I hope that he can get back on track because, you know, the the 2017-18 season, he was was good when he he was fit. Um, So I would like to think that if he's not, got the pressure of being our first choice centre back that we could still keep him around and they could do a job. If he's sold, he's sold. Uh, fair enough. Um, Garcia, there's a bit of talk about him going to Barcelona at the moment as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see if, if City keep hold of him. Um, I would like, you know, if, if money is kind of no object, I would like them to get Kalidou Koulibaly from Napoli because I think he's class and I think he's he's the sort of uh, enforcer that we've been we've been crying out for since, since company left. Um and, you know, if they do get Nathan Ake, as looks very likely, then we've got backup for, for Laporte now. Um, there's also talk of Tosinada Rabayo coming back, who's done quite well on loan at, at Blackburn. So I think they need one more personally. But um, if they don't get one more, I don't think it's a disaster either. Sam, do you know anything more about uh, Koulibaly? Has there been any news on that? <laughs> one of the messages I've got during this um, from someone I do trust says they don't want to pay what Napoli are asking. But probably from my best source I was speaking to earlier on, and he said he, he thinks they will pay. I do think they will pay. The whole thing I've heard, you know, the kind of basis of the transfer window, which I've said a few times, is they don't want another Harry Maguire. That's like top of the club. They don't want to quibble over a few million and lose out on a good player and go into next season thinking we should have done that. Because when they missed out on Maguire, Guardiola was pissed off. I think, you know, Guardiola doesn't really care how much they spend. As long as he's not going to bankrupt the club, then he's like, we'll go and do it. Um, so they don't want that to happen again. So I think they're going to do it. But if they don't, there's there's there, you know there's other targets again because part of that is when they didn't get Maguire, they couldn't get anyone else. So I think even if they can't get Koulibaly, I think they'll pay. To be fair, um, there's others. I think that Diego Carlos, which is who's been in the papers at Sevilla, he might be the the next down on the list. But yeah, they they want to get like somebody to come in and you know be like top man, almost as good as Laporte but right-sided and like that, if they do that, you know, that's a, a pretty good prospect. So yeah, I think that's, that's the way, that's the, that's the plan. They've effectively got two different lists. So it's not like Ake was an alternative to any of these guys I've just mentioned. He was like a different profile of player. 
Um, and the other profile is, yeah, top class, come in, play right side, play every week, um, make make a difference, and Koulibaly's the one. There's not many of those around, so if they don't get Koulibaly, you know, Diego Carlos, I'm not sure he comes with the same weighting. It's not like the Premier League's going to be going, shit, who's this guy? But obviously, they feel he can do a job. But if they get Koulibaly, then that's a statement, isn't it? And that might be, you know, part of what Nedham was saying about going to the stadium, thinking, oh, you know, being either scared or not scared of City. You think, well, they got Laporte and Koulibaly, then they might be thinking, yeah, okay, we we, we might be a bit more circumspect today. So, yeah, that, that's the kind of signing they want, as well as Ake, somebody who's going to send a statement. Nedham, there's been a lot of talk for for City about possibly needing another left-back. What's your take on on looking at, uh, at Benjamin Mendy and, and Zinchenko, just how, how they've been playing over the last last couple of seasons or so? I think, I think they're good players. And I think with Mendy, when he's healthy and, you know, he's... He's playing in the team regular. I think he can be very, very good. I think the same for Zinchenko, but I think for those guys, especially because they'll essentially be rotated in and out, I think when they make a mistake, it's harder to rectify it because maybe you're not going to be playing the next game. Maybe you're not going to be playing the game after that. You know, there's going to be there's not enough time to just bed in and just get into a into a full rhythm and, and whatever. And I think also, given the fact that Liverpool's fullbacks over the past two years have argued, arguably been there one of their strongest assets. I think when you compare them side by side to like a Robertson, you'd be disappointed. But is it is there an expectation that you should be able to have someone say as good as Robertson, Robertson has been for their system at Liverpool? I'm not sure. I think Mendy could be that. I don't, I prefer Mendy to Zinchenko overall because I think he can have a more physical presence for those games when, you know, there's going to be, you're playing against a Burnley or something like that. But, yeah, it's it's tough. They're both very, very good players, but I think overall they've made mistakes both in attack and in defence because I think that's one perception about football which we just always choose to gloss over is that, you know, someone can make a mistake at the back that costs a goal, but someone can make a mistake up front which means you don't get a goal and the weight is still the same but the perception is different. You know, and I think that's been one of the reasons why Liverpool have done so well over the past two years is because, you know, they don't miss that many chances and they don't give you that many either. You know, so they're just more clinical with it. So, yeah, I think as I said, I, I think Mendy has all the potential to be exactly what City need. I don't think Zinchenko does, but I still think he's a good player. But if it's City and you want to talk about winning four or five trophies every year, then I don't think a Zinchenko is going to be enough deputising to a Mendy who maybe doesn't hasn't been able to stay fit for long enough. Richard, in, when it comes to to spending money, obviously um, all eyes will be on City this summer after the uh, after, after the Cass appeal and, and the outcome of that. Um, does City need to get some players out? And if they do, who who do you think is most in danger? Um, well, the first one that springs to mind is uh, is to me Otamendi. Um, he's. I don't like how much I don't like Otamendi playing. (laughs) He was in the 2017-18 season, he was absolutely fantastic. And I remember saying this several times throughout that year. Um it was like he relearned how to play football. It wasn't like a player that um sort of improved on his game. He changed his game and became one of the best defenders in the Premier League. And he is, I think it would be fair to say, regressed since then um, more than more than just a little bit. He's, you can guarantee every game that he's going to make that mistake of standing his striker up and, and then diving in at, at the wrong moment. And 
you know, for 99% of a game, you might be fine, but those mistakes cost you and they, they spread. Like, I think that spreads through the defence and spreads through the team. So given that we're clearly making defensive reinforcements, Ake looks barring some unexpected disaster that looks a done deal. Sam's already touched on other um, potential defensive reinforcements. Um, I think there's no real reason for Otamendi to stay. He's, he's good enough for somebody to go in, for somebody to take him. Um, I don't think City will particularly struggle to get him off the books, but um, I think his, his race is run. Um, other, other positions where we need to lose players, I mean, I'd, I sort of agree that um, I agree with everything that Nedham said about left back not being a great position. I think we need to strengthen there, but I also think that once we do that, that leaves probably Zinchenko in a pretty weak position because he's not stepping into City's midfield. So I think we might, although I'm not desperate for him to go, I think we might see a situation where the most sensible thing for all parties is that Zinchenko does move on. I think it'd be a shame he's done a he's done a job there, but really when you look at him, he's not. He's done a bit of a delf where he stepped above himself in that position and now he's, he's starting to look more and more like a square peg in a round hole and his natural position just isn't there. Um, and other than that, apart from the obvious, I mean, we won't bring any money in for him, but I think we all know Bravo's going. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, I don't, um, I don't think there's a huge desperation. Somebody's going to jump in and, and say somebody really obvious that I've, I've not thought of, but I'm not sure there's a, a huge need to ship anybody else out. I was going to say, Dan, are they going to need to replace David Silva or does Phil Foden do that? I Well, I think Phil Foden is the is the natural heir to him, not necessarily stylistically, but just in terms of the position that he's going to play. I think um, I would really like to see Foden uh, sort of graduate into Silva's position in the team next season and be and be one of the first choices. Um, obviously, Ferran Torres is a signing that looks like that's close. I know he's not the same sort of player as Silva, but he's a, um, a right-sided player. Um, I heard some talk that... Guardiola was told him that he might play on the right wing for City, um, which means it'd be interesting to see who plays on the left, whether he starts playing Mahrez over there, whether he starts playing Bernardo Silva over there, or he has Sterling cutting in from the right as well. Um, so yeah, I think they're going to have a few options. Um, I don't really see the need for any kind of other creative uh, midfield player. I would maybe like to see a new striker coming in. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I, I'm not really convinced by by Jesus and, and his sort of finishing. Um, and I do wonder if the money is there, if they could just go and get someone like Aubameyang, who is uh, in a bit of a difficult situation contract-wise at Arsenal, whether they could take advantage of that and, and get a guy who's uh, either 29, nearly 30, but as, as a couple at least of, of really good years left in him. Uh, you know, he was almost top scorer in the Premier League this year. So, yeah, I'd be quite happy if they just went for a, a new centre-back and, and Torres. Uh, sorry, two new centre-backs and Torres, but... If, if the money's there and, you know, uh, FFP has been relaxed this summer, then make hay while the sun shines, I'd say. <laughs> Let's come to some uh, audience questions. So if you are uh, in the Zoom call now and you've got a question for one of the guys, uh, do stick your hand up and uh, I will unmute your microphone. So we're going to come to uh, Tony Burns. Uh, it's a two-part question and it's uh, for you, Nadem. Um you mentioned earlier you brought back a, a horrible, painful memories of a desperate season, uh, the 10-goal season, um, the 10-goals-at-home season. So the, the first part of the question is, what was it like for you as a player to be in a team that was in that goal drought at home 
And the second part of the question, what was it like for you as a player to have a manager who's extended his technical nouse to having his daughter's teddy sat in the dugout as a good luck charm? <laughs> well, that's a, those are two great questions. Um, <laughs> in terms of the playing side first, as the defender, I've, I've said for years that you're only as good as your attackers. Like That's in attack and in defence, because if your attackers are working hard and pressing like City do and all these other progressive teams do, then your job at the back's a lot easier because the attackers never get given the type of quality which will seriously affect you. But then also the other side of it is when you're playing in a game and you know your attackers are on it, they're feeling good, they're clinical and all this. You can, it doesn't matter whether you concede, you always have this belief that you're capable of scoring. And in that spell there, listen, we had, we had attackers up there. And to be fair, you can talk about midfield and defenders as well, but we were not scoring goals whatsoever. And I think we were lucky in some ways that away from home, I think we managed to get a couple of results and a few no-nils at home because we avoided relegation that year and it wasn't something which went down to the last day. But when you think about scoring 10 goals at home, you'd automatically assume that somebody, a team would be down there or now in the championship. So it, that was tough, especially as a defender, because you know that there's more pressure now in trying to stop the opposition from scoring because if it goes 1-0, it's likely the game is done. And then as for the coach, like, do we need to say his name or are we just going to talk about him <laughs> and know who we're talking about? So there's the coach in 2006. Um, so he gave me my first proper run in the team. I did play under the previous manager who we'll name, and it was Kevin Keegan. But the other manager, looking back, I think he did some things which um, weren't great, both on the field and off the field. And not least of all, in 2005, when we played against Middlesbrough, this has to be brought up, we played against Middlesbrough the last game of the season. And if we won the game, we made it into the UEFA Cup at the time. And what he did was he had a shirt printed for David James to go up front before the game. Like, just think about that and then think about how he would bring a teddy to the sideline and realise that <laughs> it's not, it's, I don't think he's thinking in a way which you would ever associate with great managers, if you know what I mean. Like, that game was so nuts. All we needed to do was win the game. All we need to do is win the game. And for as much as it's not everyone's favourite City striker, you've got a striker on the bench in John Macken. But instead, an outfield shirt has been printed for David James <laughs> before the game to go on and play up front in the biggest game of the season. Have you ever put, Has anyone out here ever played a game with two goalkeepers on the field at the same time? I, like for your team? I, I, for your team? <laughs> I, I, I play in goal, Ned. I mean, I've played in games where there's been no goalkeepers in the, on the pitch, so... It nearly so, worked, you know I mean? Ned. Like, well, he, <laughs> he was there, so I wouldn't say it nearly worked. But yeah, the fact that Robbie Fowler ended up missing probably one of his only penalties in his career, that, sorry, missing a penalty for one of the first times in his career, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. But then I just felt, in that time, I accepted it. But looking back now, it's unacceptable. And it tastes even worse because that was the year when Middlesbrough went on the run the year after. And I think they maybe made the final or the semi. And I'm thinking to myself, like, we, we obviously it's not that simple, but that could have been us. European football could have, like, true European football could have been at that stadium in 2005. But instead, we had a strike, we had a goalkeeper playing striker with a shirt on. Like, what is going on? <laughs> uh, let's come to uh, Trevor Slattery now. Hi, guys. Um, just two things, really. Nedham, you must, uh, for your Irish cohort, you must get Richard Dunn on your podcast at some time. If you don't mind. <laughs> Do you know what? I'll try. My, I'll try my absolute best. Or Stevie Ireland. 
Um, and just in general for the panel, is it worth having a look at Spurs and trying to raid them for Son and maybe Harry Kane? Would there be a hunger for that, maybe? I'll come to the fans on that one. Dan, Richard, what do you reckon? Uh, well, it's funny you say Son, actually, because I was, I was doing some extensive research on Ferran Torres today, by which I mean I was watching a YouTube compilation of him. And he reminds me a lot of Son, actually. His sort of running, dribbling style is quite similar. So if we're getting him, I don't really think we need Son. Kane is a guy who, uh, obviously, world-class striker, a uh, bit of an injury record. I feel like he'd be far too expensive for us at this point. I reckon Spurs would have every right with his contract situation to just say 150 million or nothing or even more. So I'd, I'd be surprised if, if we were able to get him this window at least. Richard, what are your thoughts? I'd be surprised. Um, I mean, I, I like Son a lot. I think he's a, a very, very good player, but I'm not really sure um, that he's what City need at this point. Um, um, I've not even done the research yet that Dan has done on Torres. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll bow down to his knowledge on that one. Um, Harry Kane, I would absolutely love at City. He's a, he's a fantastic striker, um, although I will always, always attach the cruel moniker to him that was famously tweeted that referred to him as a trophy repellent. Um, <laughs> maybe that's more just attached to Spurs, to be fair. Um, he's a great striker. He's never, I don't think at any point in his career, he's, he's really going to, the goals are going to dry up for him um, because every year he gets better. Um, he adds different ways of scoring goals. I do wonder whether it would require a, a system change for City that Guardiola wouldn't necessarily bend to. Um, and wouldn't really make Kane that compatible with the way that City play. But that said, if Sergio Aguero could remodel his game for Guardiola, then then why couldn't Harry Kane? Uh, but I mean, ultimately, I, I think the money probably talks in this one more than more than most. Why would Spurs sell to City for um, you know? Why, and why would City at this point stump up the cash that that would cost when it isn't necessarily? an urgent need. Give it a year when if Aguero were to leave at the end of his contract and Jesus still isn't making up the goals that Aguero does, which I'm not sure that's, that is what Jesus' game is going to develop into, maybe the kind of money that Kane would cost becomes more um, more viable. But it's uh, I don't think it's there this summer. I don't think that's the one. Much so, I'd, you know, all those factors removed, I'd love it. Uh, I'm going to come to Liam right now, Liam. Um, yeah, two questions for Nadam again, I'm afraid. Um, De Bruyne this year has got the joint record assists um, in the Premier League, but has any of them been as good as your goal, uh, your assist for Giovanni on the first game? <laughs> oh, terrific. So that, that's I'll, I'll have to answer question. that one. Well, that's my first I'll question. That one question. Ready, yeah. I heard on another podcast, I won't mention names, um, a couple of years ago that after the uh, 07 08 season under Sven, there was a postseason tour to Thailand where apparently. Sven was about to get sacked, but hadn't been sacked. And Taskin was singing karaoke. He was singing, Would he, should he stay or should he go? And pointing at Sven. Is that true? And is there any other stories from that story? So I, did, I, was, I was actually very lucky in some ways, and unlucky in others, because I was injured for the end of that season. So I didn't go to Thailand. And I also didn't go to Middlesbrough when we lost 8 1 or whatever it was. You know, that was a blessing. Um, but that type of story there. I can believe that to be true. And as for the things that went on, I couldn't, I can't say too much, but just say it's a slightly different club now to what it was <laughs> back then. And anything, and anything that you hear is probably true. And as for the assist thing, I hold my hands up and say, obviously 
there's nothing that Kevin De Bruyne has ever done in his career which will match my assist for Giovanni <laughs> in the first game of the season against West Ham. But honestly, we're so we're so lucky. How can Kevin De Bruyne be like? He plays the game in a completely different way to something I've ever seen before. Like we lose a David Silva, but now we've got someone playing in the in the team who's just. How can you have 20 assists in a Premier League season and score 13 goals? And like, firstly, not get the Sports Writers Award, but we'll get into that another time. But it's just, it's outrageous. And that's just the stuff which has been converted. And we talk about missed chances. Think how many he could have had if people he was playing in would have been more clinical. Like, it's outrageous. I don't think I'd have 20 assists if I played the next 30 years. But, you know, fair play to him. He's, uh, he's obviously a very special player. How about that goal against Birmingham, though, Nedham? He, he can't do that either. Oh, listen, listen. Some you're you're letting me get right into my bag now. Let me <laughs> let me open about this. <laughs> so two things actually. That I think I technically, in my opinion, I scored two goals that day because there was a header and it's brushed the foot of uh, Tevez and he took it. But I thought I scored, so I'm celebrating. Which wasn't, but whatever. We move on, Carlos. You take my goal, <laughs> fine, whatever. But then the other one of coming forward. And I tried to play a ball to Adebayor, but it's probably the worst pass I've ever made. And that is honestly saying a lot for me. That's the worst pass I've ever made. And it was so bad that he was looking at me as I played it, thinking, was that for me? But I knew it was so bad that I ran onto it myself and proceeded to put it in the bottom corner from the edge of the box with my left foot, because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> but yeah, it was also a very, very good and fun moment. Yeah. Uh, Going to come now to uh, Andrew Detmer. Hey guys, I've got uh, one question for Nedum real quick, and then one, I guess, for Richard and Dan. Uh, Nedum, who is the MLS player that you would love to see uh, make the switch over to Europe that you've played against for City? And then for Dan and Richard, if you had to choose between Messi coming to City for the end of his career, or we announced that Erling Holland was signing a 10-year contract right now, which would you take? Nedum, I'll give you a couple of minutes to have a think, so I'll turn to Richard and Dan first. Go for it. Really, really easy for me, um, Messi, and um, because I am fortunately not in control of any decisions that City will ever make, uh, and so any business sense or long-term planning doesn't matter to me. Uh, I would, I can't tell you how excited and what it would mean to me to see Messi in a City shirt, and I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that. Like, he's, I think, the best footballer of all time. Um, he plays football in, a, in an absolutely absurd way. There's nothing that he can't do. Um, and crucially, there is nothing in any of his social media activity that suggests he shares any political views that Harland might, uh, which are not views that I particularly want City associated with for anybody who's ever seen his likes on Twitter. So I'll say no more because I don't want to risk libeling or slandering the man but um yeah i don't think messi sort of got that history so but messi is the, the way he plays the game is phenomenal and uh yeah i, I reserve the right to reverse that if we sign harland <laughs> Dan, any anything to uh, add? well all, all politics aside i'll say harland then because uh, i reckon he would be going out of his way i reckon he's from you know as a young child he's been determined to avenge his father's cruel injury at Old Trafford, and I just feel like he would he would do everything in his power to 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 do that and, and get his own back in United. So so yeah, why not? Let's take him. Real uh, Nedum, any anybody you'd, you'd bring from the MLS? Okay, so what I would do because I think the one thing about the MLS is that the standards obviously very different, but the people at the top are very plenty capable of playing outside of America, plenty capable of playing in the Premier League, but City are in the top one percent of teams in the globe. So. 
I don't think there are any players who right now I would say I would like to see playing for City. But as someone, as Phil said in the comments, Diego Valeri is a top player for Portland. And if he was maybe a few years younger, I think he'd probably be the one who I'd like to see maybe give it a go because he's intelligent. And he's like, I think if you've got if you've got a real significant footballing brain on you over here, I think you can really thrive. So yeah, thanks for the reminder, Phil. Appreciate it. Uh, we've got three questions uh, left, so uh, I'll come to each of those uh, that I've got your hand up. Everybody else, uh, I'm afraid you'll uh, you've missed your chance now. Uh, Jacob Shaw is up next. Hi there, guys. Great show as always. Um, so the first one, just for to the panel, uh, we've got if we do get Nathan Ake, we've got two left-sided centre backs. Could that be a problem? Because obviously. A lot of people, a lot of teams do have three, no, have two right-footed centre backs. But I've just seen online people saying it could be a problem, but I don't think it could be. Just wondering what you lot think about that. I'll, uh, I'll throw that to you, Sam. I don't think I, I don't know why it would be an issue. Like it feels weird, but um, it feels weird because it hasn't been done. But that's not to say it wouldn't work. Like, two right-footed play all the time. It's not ideal for a Guardiola team. You like the balance of the right and the left, and he's explained that. But I don't see why two two lefties couldn't work for the same reason. Like just because it feels weird, I wouldn't. To, to keep it brief, just because it feels weird doesn't mean it wouldn't work. I'm sure there's plenty of things to like human history feel weird but work. But we won't go into that because I think that's a completely different topic. <laughs> <laughs> and not necessarily about football. Quick one, just for Nadem, because uh, obviously he was in the QPR side for the um, the Aguero ninety three twenty moment. They could have got relegated that day. I was just wondering, in quick words, possibly, how was he feeling at the full time? Was, did he know that they were saved or relegated? Or uh, uh, can we swear on this? Yeah, or go what? for it. <laughs> right. So before, after he just the second after he scored, I was absolutely shitting bricks, like all over the place. But then, about ten seconds later, I looked up and I saw that the QPR fans were celebrating. Mark Hughes and all the people on the bench were celebrating, and then that was without question, like the biggest relief I've ever felt in my entire I'd say life because I just like for me in that moment I thought I'm going to get relegated in my old home stadium by the manager who I didn't really like at the time by people who I thought were my friends on the opposition but then all of a sudden it was the flip of it and it's like well as a City fan like I've gotten to see them win the league and as a QPR player we stayed in the league which was our moment so I've achieved every goal that was possible in that game in that moment so it was incredible. Lovely stuff. Uh, Sean Blinkhorn. Evening all. Uh, my question's for Nedham, really. Uh, I was listening to your interview with Sam a couple of months ago, and I was wondering if you were ready to elaborate on your choice that you, you don't want to go into coaching after you, you finish playing, whether there's something that you've seen that, you, you, that you'd rather do. Uh, and on top of that, is there anything that City can do to get their own into the club in a coaching capacity after they finish the playing days. Thanks. You know, I'll answer the second one first. And I think one thing about City is that in terms of recruitment, maybe this is right or wrong, but they are good at bringing ex-players and people who have an affinity to the club back in if they are qualified to fit into a role. And I think that in some ways, for my, in my opinion, is a good thing because people then understand what it means to represent the club and, you know, and work for the club as well instead of someone just coming into thinking it's just a sterile environment. Because, as I say, I think one of the reasons they do so well is because people love working there, people love being there. And you get that from having a history with the club. Um, and as for the coaching side of it, so um, let me let me try it. So I love, I love playing football, like I love it. But 
the stuff that gets added on top of that, I don't love as much in terms of the political side of it, in terms of how on a week-to-week basis you could have someone that's training really well, but they won't play on the Saturday or someone that's playing really badly in training, but is a guarantee to start on a Saturday. People being told who should play, who shouldn't play. People being told you have to say this, you have to do that, you have to behave like this, you have to behave like that. And it's a long way from what the game is that we actually all love. And for me, as I say, all that stuff takes away from my experience of it because I'm, I feel like at times it almost feels like work because you almost have to play a game within a game. And I don't love that. And I think as a coach, if you're potentially going to be doing it for 20, 30, 40 years, if you've I've been lucky enough to have, made, to, make, to have made enough money to be able to take a step into something which I really want to do, I suppose to something which I really have to do, because as it stands, the only real qualifi- qualification I have is in football but I've got time to go and try and figure out other things. And if I didn't have that money, then maybe I'd have to stay in football. But yeah, I don't, I don't love it from that aspect. Lots of players do and lots of, lots of ex-players do and so on and so forth. But I don't, like I enjoy helping people. Like I'm a big leader within this team. I've been a big leader within all the teams that I've been in. But that's not a coaching side. And that's something which I think I could just do anyway in whatever field I choose to step into. So yeah, from a coaching standpoint, it's uh, it's overall not for me, especially as like as you get older. Like I'm playing, I'm training now with a kid who was born in 2003. Like I'm thinking, I got with my I got with my uh, my wife in 2002. I started my professional career in 2004, but we're both on the same field now, and he might have a bit of mouth. And I'm thinking, I, I can't even listen to you right now because you didn't even survive the millennium bug. You know what I mean? Like this is this is this is the world we live in. So yeah, for me, it's it's going to be it's going to be a no and I, as i say i look to try and help or make a difference and who knows maybe i work for the club again but it just won't be in a coaching capacity at all and uh, the final question for this year is uh, adam carter uh, this one's for sam uh, now city's name has been cleared by cass will the club take action against those journalists that still seem intent on dragging the club's name through the mud uh well there was a story wasn't there that they'd looked into getting to the lawyers um involved that was mainly for I think it was they were alluding to to Carragher for what he was saying, um, but also other figures, other clubs. I think, to be fair, for, if, you, if you're talking like the legal threshold, it would have to be something like outright libelous, and like the stories that are being written at the moment. While um, you could probably make a good case that there was some kind of agenda behind it in terms of the the, the slant of the coverage, the tone of the coverage. I'm not. I'm not sure there'd be the legal threshold to to challenge that. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't. I know a lot of people want like certain media bans. City generally don't do that. Like very, very rare that they that they do. Um, no, I mean, if if there was something that was actually libelous, I'm sure they would. Um, but I'm not sure they could actually get lawyers involved to go against like, the the tone of reporting. Uh, maybe if they really wanted to go on the front foot, but it just doesn't seem like they do. And even since, if you look at the comments that have come out of the club, it's been nothing. It's just been Guardiola. But Guardiola is his own man. You know, Guardiola is like a statesman, and he will take that burden on his own shoulders. He doesn't mind like speaking up for causes, whatever they may be. And obviously, on this occasion, he's speaking out on behalf of City. But City don't really want to get involved. They don't have like CEOs and sporting directors that maybe like Bayern Munich do or Liverpool in some cases who will speak out. Whatever you think about City on the outside, other fans will have strong opinions about City and how they run. But nobody would say that they've got owners who have spoken on the record and criticised other clubs. It just doesn't happen. And I don't think that's how they want to go about things. Um, but obviously, they're very happy with um, Guardiola. I just want to go back to the choice question from earlier. One thing I will add on the striker, I think they do want to get a striker. Um, and I do think they've got a lot of money. 
and the Kane thing kind of makes sense. But quickly, just to move on, any kind of hookup between Nedham and Stephen Ireland, having spoken to them quite a bit this year, would just be, it's like sitcom territory. It'd be so fun. <laughs> Such different characters, but like, just so, oh, God, I would, you know, if you did it weekly, like you, the subscription would be so worth it. It would be absolutely amazing. Can I, uh, can I just jump in on something which you said there where we're talking about character being held accountable and stuff like that? I think this is my take on it, and no one has to own this, but in my opinion, if you can spit at fans and not be held accountable, what chance have you got of being <laughs> held accountable for saying City did something wrong? I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> I wish I could do that to Thierry Henry. In fact, any of them. The very final thing that I want to do tonight, um, I don't know if you actually know this or not, Nedham, uh, but you played in David Silva's very first game at the Etihad. Uh, he played for Valencia. Yes, and uh, you were playing for City. That's right. Yeah, I, mean, I think we, I mean, we maybe we lost like two 0 but I just remember thinking like we thought we were going to be good at City, but oh lord, were they good? Yeah, I remember those times, man. I remember that. What was uh, you're the only one of us that's that's ever got near to playing with him? What was he like? Oh wow! To be fair, you say that I didn't get that close either. I tried my best, but you know, he's just he's David Silva. He's he's. Do you know what he is? So he's he's a magician as people will say, and the way he views the game and the way he plays the game is like, you can't try and be it because you just, you just not it. He just has something special. And it's something which like really sums him up and kind of sums up City in general for that period of time, like this golden generation from say 2010 was when I spoke to Joe Hart about David Silva. He said like David could play the best pass you've ever seen in the history of the world. Like say he's volley through to Zeko, to Zeko, whatever, at Old Trafford. But after the game, all they want to talk about is a moment where maybe he made a tackle or won a header and he will will throw that down your throat. Say, but did you see my tackle? Did you see my tackle? (laughs) And, you know, what a a human being. You know what I mean? Credit to him. It was an absolute honour playing with him and to have watched him for those years as well. It's like, it's it's a true, true blessing. A lot of people just tackled, didn't they? One of those dressing room pictures. I, I, I didn't want to say it, but here we are. Somebody yeah, said it. There's always one. There's always one. <laughs> we have to end it on that note, do we, Sadly, I see how it is. I, I, uh, well, I, that's I it for this been year's... Been fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's been great fun, hasn't it? Uh, that's it for this year's Blue Moon Podcast Live. So thank you very much for joining us for what is ultimately a bit of a weird one. It's not actually the end of the season of this season's podcast, though, because we're going to be doing them for as long as City State in the Champions League. Next week, we'll have the preview of the Real Madrid game, and then soon after we'll do a review and we'll keep doing that in between uh, with the show in between until uh, City are knocked out of the competition or indeed go on to win it who knows uh, if you're a Patreon backer or you're going to sign up then there's no charge for August we're not doing any bonus shows until the season returns in September uh, however you can still access all the previous bonus shows by signing up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast you can even get them for free if you sign up right now uh, so join us again for that and uh, for now thanks very much to my guests Richard Burns Thank you. And just before you move on, David, because I never get a chance to say this, and I think it's particularly worth saying this season, um, you always do an amazing job throwing together the live shows. But I think to make this one work um, when it's not even the end of the season and in such a different format, um, I think it's brilliant. So not to blow, not to blow smoke too much, and I know you hate praise and all that. Don't, don't, don't say that. I don't even know if it's recorded yet. So this this might have just been a private show for these thirty people that have been with us. <laughs> um, and Ned um, loved watching you and great to do the show with you. Thank you. I oh, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much as well, Dan Burke. Thank you. I second that emotion. Uh, Sam Lee, thank you very much as always. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Just great, Ned fantastic. Absolutely. 
And Nedum, thank you very much. Also, Nedum, you've got uh, a podcast where you're speaking to uh, a lot of ex-City players as well, so there'll th- be a perfect audience for you there as well, aren't you? Yeah, for sure, for sure. If you, I think it's Kickback with Nedum, and there are loads of City players in there, and the best one you should listen to is the one with Gail Clichy, because it explains in detail exactly how City got to where they are now. It's not just stuff that happens on the field. So, anyway, thanks for having me on, and I maybe would not have come on if I knew Sam Lee was on. But thank you very much anyway. <laughs> Appreciate it. Sorry, Sam. <laughs> thank you very much for listening, guys. Uh, we'll see you next. We'll see you next time. Take care. Good night. That was the Blue Moon podcast. Please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast.